0: Hey there, documentary lovers. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Melanie Dark, here with my co host, Jim Hudson, and this is Podumentary, a show where we deep dive, dig into, and unpack the details of a documentary in glorious detail. But first, since this is our inaugural episode, let's give you guys some quick background on us. I'm going to start with me and how this podcast idea got started. So, I have a professional background that feels like it's led to this moment, actually. First, working in the entertainment industry as a post-production supervisor. Then I pivoted into voice acting for three years. And then ultimately, I left the industry altogether uh, for a while to become a social media and digital strategist. I did that about 12 years ago. I'm obviously nuts about documentaries. And then back in 2016, fell madly in love with a specific kind of podcast, um, a recap podcast. Jim, have you ever listened to a recap podcast?
1: Yes, I have this this time. (laughs) (laughs)
0: because I forced him to.
1: I didn't know what that was.
0: For those of you like Jim that don't know what a recap podcast is, essentially, um, usually it, surrounds a show that everyone's a big fan of. In this case, um, where I fell in love, it was the Game of Thrones and the podcast called A Cast of Kings uh, with David Chen and Joanna Robinson. And in each episode of the podcast, they take a deep dive into the most recent episode that week. And I really loved that. I loved listening to them pull it apart and really talk about what they thought it meant and, um, you know, make predictions, et cetera. And so I went looking in iTunes for a podcast that recaps documentaries in the same way and came up empty, which shocked me, honestly, because typically you look up any topic in the podcast platforms and you find about half a dozen podcasts covering it, right? It's just so saturated, especially now. So at first I was really bummed out and then I thought, wait, why don't I do it? So here we are. I dragged Jim in.
1: Yeah. I'm shocked by that as well. Cause even though I'm a video game producer by trade, I've always loved documentaries. I can watch them from sunup to sundown and fall asleep to them and watch them in my sleep. Uh, Reflecting back on my first love of documentaries, I remember watching an old JFK assassination documentary. I tried to find the title, but I failed. I thought it was called Six Seconds to Kill, but I (laughs) don't think it is because it's nowhere on the internets. Uh, But I was hooked. Um, And uh, ever since then, I watched, pretty much any documentary, but the ones that really excite me are the ones that took place in the past that not everybody really heard about. You remember hearing about it and then going, man, whatever happened with that? And then there's a documentary about it. I devour those. For example, I remember Z Channel when that was out in the early eighties and I was just a little kid. Mm -hmm. I did not have it, but some of my friends did because I grew up in a nicer area. (laughs) And then the pizza bomber, I was wondering, whatever happened to that guy? There's a documentary about that that I hope to. Uh, well, I hope to, I hope we cover at some Can't point. Can yep. Um But I remember really becoming a documentary addict in the '90s when uh, PBS put out the American Presidents documentary. I got really hooked on LBJ and Nixon, and then mm-hmm. Nixon, who I'm a perverse fan of. <laughs> took me down the rat hole of Watergate <laughs> and there is no Watergate documentary that I won't watch uh, even though I don't learn much anymore I think I've uh, figured that one out uh, you've
0: reached saturation
1: but to say uh, really the only bad documentary are the ones that poor used reenactments poorly with uh, poor acting bad poor actors. script yeah. Yeah. It's not the actor's fault, it's the writer's <laughs> fault, in my opinion, and the director's. I wish
0: I could remember my first documentary. I can't. I, I think that I understood that I was really um, taken by the form when um, someone gave me the Ken Burns baseball series documentary, and I watched all 22 hours, um, obviously not in one sitting, but over those days, I just binged it, and I wasn't even really, and I'm not, and please don't. Right in and attack me. Um, I I very much enjoy baseball, but I wouldn't consider myself some sort of rabid fan. Um, But I think that my favorite genre is the examination of people, um, anything that examines people and what led to who they became both publicly, but probably more interestingly, privately. Um, we're all just such complex, messy creatures. But the older I get and, and the more I'm exposed to other people's stories, you know, this through documentaries and, and otherwise, it just seems like there's this distinct set of experiences and, and circumstances, trauma, losses, what have you, that that form us into what we become by virtue of how we've had to react to, you know, to survive what came our way. Um, and that just fascinates me. So, which is why I'm so excited about the first documentary we're going to be taking a deep dive into today the Emmy nominated George Carlin's American Dream. It's a two part doc about the incomparable comedian from HBO by co directors Michael Bonfiglio and Judd Apatow. He also, um, the two of them also exec produced alongside George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin, and Carlin's longtime manager, Jerry Hamza. Apatow and Bonfiglio do such a beautiful job getting below the the public persona, you know, they did um, Gary Shandling's, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. They did uh, the Great Depression with um, Gary Goldman, which I also hope to cover. And they just really do a great job getting below the public persona to reveal the sort of private person and, and what went into making that private person. And they've done that so well here. So let's get into it.
1: George Carlin, he was never not in the discussion of greatest comedian ever. Smart. George is the smartest. Smartest man man I've ever met. You watch George Carlin bit, you know he's not riffing. He
0: was genius at making you laugh and changing your mind.
1: He was an avatar for anti-corruption. Like a truth machine. My worldview was really shaped by Carlin. He
0: found injustice offensive, kind of like a biblical prophet. I want to say something.
1: He was so funny. Why did I like him? He was so fucking funny.
0: Okay. So um, this documentary, it it starts out with a montage. You know, I guess it's, um, you know, the blessing of, of, of telling the story of someone famous is you have a lot, a lot of archival footage. And this is a montage of archival footage that, you know, where George is just riffing on rants and um, all of the topics that typify um, what mattered to him, what he was passionate about. This is a montage of clips um, interchanged with some commentary from comedians today. Um, specifically though, what stood out for me, W. Kamal Bell, um, you know, mentioning how he sees Carlin as having changed comedy like three or four times in his career and, and yet still seems to be relevant, still seems to be talking to us about the times, even though he's been gone for a lot of years now. And I, that was sort of one of the main takeaways for me is the way that comedians revere him and see him as a change maker in that space. What, was your, what were your thoughts as it opened?
1: Yeah, uh, just just my relationship with George Carlin, uh, much to the chagrin of some of my more enlightened friends. <laughs> I was never a big George Carlin fan, to be honest. I don't know why that is. Uh, so when I sat, I, if I was not a part of this podcast, I don't even know if I'd watch this one. Gotcha. But uh, because I am, I, you know, I sat down and I go, well, this one's going to be a little more informational for me, because I really don't know a whole lot about George Carlin. In fact, the the only thing I remember about George Carlin really was Dr. Demento would play this kid of his called Icebox Man that both me and I believe my sister would listen to and think was really funny because it, it was. But I never really dived deeper past that.
0: So let's start talking about uh, where it begins with his with his childhood, naturally. One of the things that um, struck me is it starts off, uh, you know, this this documentary was made— um, intercut with not only what we've seen um, of George Carlin in the public space, but um, Kelly Carlin had a lot of recordings of him, audio recordings, and so we're ben- we benefit from the fact that he had recorded himself reflecting on his own career and his own history and his own past. And so he begins, you know, talking about his childhood. and I thought it was interesting. In fifth grade, I mean, think about where you were in fifth grade. He predicted his future. He wrote down that he was going to be a DJ, comedian, actor. Big success and literally ticked every one of those boxes at some point, which fascinates me that, what are you, at 10? You're 10 years old in fifth grade. That's wild to me, that that level of self-awareness and intentionality at that point. Um, And then, you know, it sort of then tells the story of his parents, and this is this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, about the things that go into what build us into the person that we become. His father was older, he's an older guy, um, and had drinking issues, and apparently had drinking issues before, prior to meeting his mother, but um, when he wasn't drunk, they they said that he was Really charming and a an natural comedian, and won a, day, a national Dale Carnegie speakers contest um, above 600 other entr- entrants. So you can get the sense that like this guy was a real sort of two sides of of, of a coin, like two very different sides of a coin. Yeah,
1: I think it was, was it his wife, George's mom, that called him a street angel and house devil. <laughs> yeah, is that right? I
0: mean? Street angel, house devil. That's never good, especially if you're a kid or or a spouse, I suppose. And and he does give his mother a compliment here. He says that she could tell stories, do characters, voices, et cetera. And, um, I kind of put the timeline together. It looks like, um, I actually went and I'm, I'm listening to Kelly Carlin's book right now. And some of what wasn't in, um, the doc here is just that actually she, um, his mother repeatedly left the father and, um, and then, kept going back to him. One of those times that she, she went back to him, she got pregnant with George. So they were together when George was born. She fled. He was eight weeks old when he, when she climbed out the window with his brother, Patrick, Um, which I was like, wow, I can't do that now. And I haven't given birth, but I can't make it out the window. I'd be stuck. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, basically they fled. I I think uh, you might have this in your notes. they, They fled to, I think her brother, George's uncle or something and and then he talks about um she fled because he had uh, the, the father had attempted or had um rather threatened to kill her and she had to go into hiding and that they were vagabonds until uh, George was about 3 years old.
1: Yeah, it even said in the divorce papers that she had to leave because she didn't want her ex-husband to beat on her second son. Right. Like he did on the first. Right.
0: I mean, that's it's a sad commentary. That's
1: pretty brutal when that yeah. goes into the legal papers.
0: And it looks like uh, there were about five, six years between the two of them. So the, his older brother was about five or six when they went out the window. Um, I don't know. Did you have any specific thoughts on that?
1: No, other than it seems that alcohol is a problem in our society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. Every yeah. every most biography documentaries have a drunken father, <laughs> or someone drunk,
0: emotionally neglectful parent. Yeah, I think that there's a real theme, and you and I we're going to cover um, the Zen Diaries of of Gary Shandling in a couple of episodes, and and, and so there are some parallels here to, you know, I notice in in comedians you you tend to see similar reactions uh, to these childhood circumstances, either of substance abuse, of early loss. In Gary Shandling's case, his father di- or his brother died when he was really yeah. young. And in George's case, he has an absent father, but also a father who died when he was eight. So you lose the opportunity to make anything out of that.
1: Yeah, and he he dropped dead of a heart attack. He had heart disease, yeah. and clearly that's a, you know, her- her- hereditary problem. Right. But uh, George doesn't uh, <laughs> take caution in that as we learn no, later on. He doesn't. A little foreshadowing there.
0: <laughs> and I wonder if you relate to this. I really related to this part. So he, he, you know, he goes on to talk about how, because now his, they went in, they, they got their own house. Uh, ultimately, she was able to sort of pick herself up by her bootstraps, his mother. And then he describes being a latchkey kid and, you know, she had to work. And so um, he had to, you know, let himself in after school and make his food and, and then he he reflects and comments on not feeling lonely, you know, on, on actually enjoying and thriving on solitude, you know. And um, I really relate to that. I was a latchkey kid uh, um, in those Gen X years. I absolutely took myself home. I had a key around my neck. I made myself food. I watched every single day. I got home and watched the Gong Show. Yeah. And um, and hollywood squares and so i and i was thrilled like i loved to be by myself and still continue to this day to really love my alone time and um so i really related to that and i wondered if it also if you have a um early circumstances of a lot of tumult and strain i wonder if you do sort of trend toward um liking time to yourself because it's a guaranteed calm
1: you didn't watch any uh Sid and marty croft little lidsville H- little H- hr stuff <laughs> I did. yeah I was lucky not to be a latchkey kid I would have starved to death so. <laughs> I didn't even know how to open the fridge I
0: mean like, I have a specific memory I have a, you gotta love the 70s and just sort of parenting in the 70s it was so different um, I mean obviously not for everybody but um, my mom called home one night because she was going to be late and talked to me through making spaghetti including like frying up or whatever, sautéing up the, the ground beef and I was six
1: yikes <laughs> I still can't do that.
0: <laughs> and she I got in trouble because I um I didn't boil the water and then put in the pasta. I put in the pasta and then boiled the water and let me tell you what happens. It's just mush. Um yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um he sort of starts here by um touching on how this uh that entertainers were his family, right? And that he he was really attracted to comedians on the radio. He wanted to be like Danny Kay, Bob Hope, Red Skelton, you know, that he he evolved as a class clown. Um, for me, it was Chuck Barris, um, like I said, or, or Paul Lind. I mean, I was just, I remember thinking and I wondered about you. I remember I didn't really have anybody fu- funny in my family. And so seeing these people on television was a real like revelation for me where I thought, oh, like, here are these funny people. I was so drawn to them and felt so connected to them. And I wondered if you, like his early people were Danny Kay, Bob Hope, Red Skelton, sort of cut-ups. I wondered if you had anybody that you sort of like noticed when you were young and felt that like, ooh, like light bulb kind of thing.
1: My father, despite being a small statured man, was pretty much a big personality in the household. He was uh, domineering, and uh, what he said went. And he had a pretty decent sense of humor. Yeah, it, did, it wasn't really apropos a lot of the times. But so no, I didn't. I I wasn't looking for comedy. I think I've used my sense of humor as a way to get where I am. So uh, no, uh, not any not anybody no, offhand I can think up. of, except maybe my father. Who, yeah.
0: I knew your dad. He was, a, yeah. he was funny and entertaining and a definite big personality for sure. Well, so religion, he talks about that as his first big betrayal, which I think is really interesting because that be, that became a through line for him. Right. And it, he really never left that perspective. He talks about, um, how first communion at seven years old, which I think is actually pretty young to have some sort of astute revelation about your relationship to something as major as religion. Um, Where he said, you know, they told him that he would get his first communion and that they said that um, I'd feel God's presence and the state of grace, and I didn't. And so he felt lied to and then decided to be suspect of really any authority, which is pretty empowering, you know, in
1: second grade. Right. (laughs) I was still trying to figure out how to open the refrigerator (laughs) in second
0: grade. Okay, so... Here's another theme, Jim, that I think we've seen in other documentaries and certainly maybe in our own lives. I'm I'm not speaking to me personally, necessarily, um, just generally, you know, people we know. And that is um, he mentions that his mother is a controlling narcissist. And he's not the only one that says that, right? His older brother is also pretty much on the table about saying the same thing about Mary.
1: Right. Not the only Judge Apatow documentary that talks about a eccentric <laughs> mother foreshadowing
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. The Gary Shandling uh story is really shaped by um who his mother was and really who she wasn't and you know if we stay along in this comedian theme I mean I'm really uh, comedians are endlessly fascinating to me um for reasons of bias you know and, and otherwise and um Johnny Carson similar if you watch any sort of story about Johnny Carson and his mom and his relationship to his mom, just unyieldingly disapproving and so like impossible to get like that brand of love you're looking for from that person. And it really just, while wounding seems to create people who just need to explode onto the world as a, as a reaction to that, you know? Um, and so uh, George Carlin is no, no exception. Um, you know, he he says, I had a mother who tried to control my life. That's what repelled me from her. And that she was a drama queen and a narcissist. And I wondered what you thought about this. The brother, his brother Peter, talks about, you know, going back to what you said she was a he was a house devil, the dad was a house devil and a street angel, that she told her sons that like that that everything else was bad except the sex. Right? <laughs> like who's telling your kids? <laughs> Right? Yeah. Like, oh, he was good in the bedroom, but no not anywhere else. It's like, oh God. <laughs> nobody, yeah. Nobody wants that intel.
1: I never had that conversation oh, with my mom, thank God.
0: Oh. And then he flees her um by joining the Air Force.
1: Yeah, at seventeen. Yeah. Wow. And uh I wanted to stay home because of my mom. He fled because of mom, but we both had the same thing. He sent his brother a note saying, If you're ever sad, this'll cheer you up. And it was a picture of his father's gravestone. <laughs> I think I'm going to follow that suit.
0: I mean honestly, you could see that sense of you know, sense of humor really early. And and I really I really took it a little layer deeper too because I thought this is a guy who who does not enjoy authority. And yet the power of not enjoying his mother over, like supersedes his lack of wanting to deal with any kind of authority because joining the military is ultimately capitulating to authority,
1: right? Yeah, that's true. Like
0: coming, going, like, and so it interested me that he, he leapt for a solution that was also at its very foundation, a problem for him, which, you know, I guess then, um, it tracks that he didn't stay. (laughs) He didn't finish out his, he didn't, he, he made it three years, he said, um, and, And got in trouble for falling asleep on guard duty, failure to obey orders, disrespect to a non-commissioned officer. He basically said, yeah, I've got three court-martials.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I was looking at the actual doc. They would show the uh, documents of his troubles. And everyone had a DUI on there, and he would never point that out. hmm. I don't know why.
0: (laughs) A little too too much truth, maybe. I
1: guess.
0: (laughs) And, you know, it's there that he gets a chance to become a DJ. So there's our... Right, right. Good morning Vietnam moment, I suppose. Um, right. He becomes a DJ while he's in the Air Force. And then that experience enables him to to try to go for a job in radio there in at the at the number one station in the town where he was stationed, rather. Um, and he gets it, which I think is. I wanted to sort of reflect on that with you too. Like, doesn't it make you feel I, I re, you know, when you sometimes you're looking at these stories, these early years, early success, early entertainers, and the access you had to getting a shot at your dreams is so different than now like right I think do you think that that's because number one fewer people but also number two these these were really newer mediums these were emerging areas of entertainment where the guy could just wander in and go hey I'd like to be a DJ you get your shot
1: yeah I'd like to believe that it's more challenging now, and but I'm sure the previous generation thought they were more challenging than the <laughs> generation before, right? And the right. realities are, for every George Carlin documentary, there's a thousand documentaries that are not made because people didn't get those breaks. That's true. So,
0: That's true. And I'm sure you're right, generationally, like, right, all the vaudevillians are going, nobody, exactly. oh, these days it's so easy. Nobody had to put their all their clothes in a trunk.
1: Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: Um, so maybe just from our perspective, it looks really easy, but it does. It just, uh, and there's several, that theme actually rises up for me a few times. So I'll, you know, I'll flag it each time we come into it, but it just truly, I don't know if it's good timing, right place, right time, easier access. I'm not sure what it is, but it sort of strikes me. His story has a couple of those moments.
1: Right. But I mean, this is a testament to his, you know, his drive is right. these would happen and he would capitalize on
0: Right. Them. He'd run look, at
1: them. If we look back on our lives, there's probably something that really could have, Taken us in a different direction, but for whatever yeah. reason, didn't. Yeah.
0: Took me four had, years to get us in this studio, well, there you for, go. for example. <laughs> there you go.
1: And I'm ready to retire. <laughs> uh, but for him, you know, he, the, it was, he built on these opportunities. And yeah. I think it, that's, that has to go happen.
0: Yeah, it's a testament to his fortitude, yeah. for sure. He
1: knew what he wanted to he do. He
0: was making opportunities for himself. I will say, this is a guy who... When he did stumble or have something that you know might knock somebody back permanently, the guy just pivoted. He just he just was like doubled down on his intention to succeed, which I really really respect. Um, this is where Jack Burns enters his life while he's working at this DJ station. Jack was his newsman, and they apparently they had some great comedy chemistry together, and so. They decided together that they were going to drive to California in a Dodge Dart with only 300 bucks. I've never done anything that risky in my life. Um and and really, you know, beyond just the comedy dynamic that they had together, uh, you know, apparently um, he really had an influence on George from a political perspective. They they talk about the fact that his mother, to your point from earlier, his parents were conservative. His mother was really conservative. And up until that point, she had been his main point of influence. But, you know, meeting Jack Burns, connecting with Jack Burns, um, really influenced him politically because Jack was a raging liberal and an artist type who really, like, passionately believed in civil rights and didn't trust the government. And I think maybe George, it seems as though George recognized um, himself in in Jack a little bit.
1: Yeah, something I like to do when I'm watching these documentaries is when there is a something added that interests me, I'll do a little research and a couple of fun facts about Jack Burns. Uh, after he and George broke up, his second partner was Avery Schreiber. Who you might know as the Doritos guy, if you remember back long ago, he was the guy with the handlebar mustache. Oh my gosh! Who, uh, who was the Doritos mascot, if you will? Um, oh, well, and Julia. do you remember the old cartoon, adult cartoon? Wait till your father gets home. I do uh, not. Starring Tom Bosley as the father. I don't. I mean, it was a precursor to the Simpsons. All your uh, more mature themed, interesting animations. He was the neighbor voiceover. Okay. And he co-wrote the Muppet, first Muppet movie. So, what? That's your Jack Burns. Oh, you really, you really buried the lead there. See, that's, oh, I did? Oh, the Muppet movie? Meaning that to me, like ah, that's,
0: that's the one. The like, fact like that I you co-wrote don't
1: co-wrote the Muppets. The fact that you don't remember the Doritos guy? I just, I lived on Doritos because I couldn't open the fridge.
0: <laughs> we didn't have Doritos in my house.
1: Ooh.
0: Um, Interesting. I love a little trivia. Thanks for bringing that. A little. Di- oh, and he did pass not too long ago. I think he literally just passed away in the last three or four years. Um. R.I.P. Um. Okay. So now he's out. Uh, you know, while they're on the road, he and Jack. Um, they. Uh, he's doing a show and he meets Brenda on the road. She was working at um, one of the places where he was doing stand up, and uh, they clicked immediately. I thought that it was. She really struck me. This is where she enters, and there's a lot of—thankfully, there are a lot of interviews with her. And this is where she talks about the first time that they met. And what struck me about her, Jim, is that that I liked, that seemed like they were a good match for this reason, is both just very sure of who they were. She's very, like, comfortable in her own skin, right? Like, he came up and asked her, like, where does a guy—it's sort of a line, I guess. But, like, where does a guy, you know, go to have some fun in this place? And she says— you find a girl with a stereo and go to her house. And she took him home, which I just, I marveled at the fact that he was delivering a line and she delivered one right back. And that kind of, that really kicks you off with the nature of their dynamic.
1: I agree. I mean, uh, you put it very well that I probably glossed over, but now that you say it, it's (laughs) it's an important
0: dynamic
1: that we see throughout the documentary.
0: Absolutely. And she's not, you know, she's easy on the eyes. She's got beautiful bone structure. <laughs> I don't know if that's relevant. Um, but I wanted to sort of also reflect on something that I noticed in this um, from a human perspective. And that's, you know, sh- she takes him home right away. He stays two weeks. <laughs> I don't know that there's anybody. I really, really know I want in my house for two weeks, number one. Um, but I, that that sort of struck me. And then they communicated over the ensuing seven weeks, they say. And there's all these love notes and voicemails. I love the fact that they kept this stuff and that they somehow have these things. Um, And then he came back and married her. And literally, she quits her job and leaves her life and where she lives and becomes his partner and number one fan, and they she hops in the car and boom, they get on the road. Her daughter says they were comrades in arms. And he and Jack Burns decide to split. And you know, Jack feels the pull of becoming the Doritos guy, apparently. <laughs> 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 um, they split and uh George is gonna make a go of single stand-up comedy. And and because of that, um, as we know, and this is where, you know, um I think a lot of people can relate, they really struggled, right? It's that early, that starving artist phase. They struggled financially. And I really loved how she talks about this, how Brenda, his wife, talks about this time where she basically says, yeah, they were really struggling, but she really hung in with him. She never urged him to choose something more secure, which I really, you know, I had to hand it to her. I think, you know, I know I know a lot of people who have asked the other person, like, okay, give up this pipe dream and please just become an accountant. <laughs> or whatever the thing is. Um, And so I really loved that they truly were a partnership in that way. I mean, she just really had faith in his ability to parlay his personality and his perspective into a, a career, a really successful career. And, and, and then this brings us back to the theme that I was talking about earlier, Jim, where, you know, he, he began doing amateur nights in New York city. He really, you know, focused on that um, in order to get experience and exposure but then they hop right to, you know, he got a shot at on the Merv Griffin show. And I wondered how much time had gone by.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, he's he's the comedian with at least five lives. If, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he got on the Merv Griffin. He did. And if, I think
0: your point is and, well and taken.
1: You, if you somehow got on to Arsenio, you would probably... Right? not Be doing this podcast with me, right? It just, do you know, how many years
0: how... I had to do tongue tricks before I got on Larman.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: So many years in the trenches.
1: I knew she'd get that in.
0: <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, and and they talk a little bit about the Merv Griffin uh piece because it's a variety show, and so he had to couch his more subversive tendencies into um. You know, sort of couch them in jokes and they they talk about the like, I don't even remember this part, the hippie dog whistle, how he'd how he would impersonate what he knew was a stoned person. But but he knew that as long as he didn't hit it uh, like too much on the head, right. that the takeaway from people who didn't know any better was that this guy was just a dummy. But that but that hippies would know, oh, this guy's stoned. Do you remember that part? I, I do. That was interesting.
1: But if I correct me if I'm wrong, Mer Griffin was a talk show, but then he got on to the John Davidson, Davidson show, right? That right. was a variety the show. The
0: Summer Musical. Right. Yeah, and if right. you remember
1: John Davidson from That's Incredible. I do.
0: I do. And that's but, the
1: household I lived in, right? Right. His, one of the three hosts was John Davidson, Fran Tarkenton, and oh, all, what was her name? No, no. Oh, yeah. And all my parents talked about was how she left her husband for Joe Theismann. <laughs> It's like, why, why do I know this? Why
0: do you know that? Wait, is... Did, what was her name? Am I wrong? Am I remembering this wrong? Did Byron Allen join that show eventually? Ooh. When A young Byron Allen, who is now like a media, a media mogul. The guy is... I don't know.
1: Well, I, forgot the, I forgot the... Write in and tell us. I forgot the name of, what's her name, who uh, left her husband for oh, Joe Tyson. Right, Theismann.
0: now we don't even know. We're going to hear from people. They'll let us know. Um, okay. But anyway, so,
1: so yeah, it's... That hippie dog is on the John Davidson show, dog right? Whistle. Right. Yeah. Okay. And we see that scene with him and Richard Pryor talking about looking at the audience. Yeah.
0: He gets a, a gig. He gets a gig. Um, what we're talking about in 1966, he books the Craft Summer Musical. It's before my time, and it also wasn't something that um, I I remember at all. I don't know
1: how long that show ran. What moved me. Was the letter that Brenda was writing either to herself or to someone the weekend after the JFK assassination where she really talks about, you know, how difficult it is to do what they're doing, but she just knows they need to be doing it. And just, I just reflecting back on that yeah. razor's edge of, man, so close to quitting. Yeah. Yeah it just ain't worth it no more having you know started a theater in downtown LA and living in a very <laughs> undesirable living situation to make happen i did quit right i right. said no no more i'm going into video games uh you didn't live in a converted brewery i did yeah. and, and, and with no kitchen and a shower that used to be a urinal
0: i never knew that how did i go to that brewery <laughs> so many times and not know that
1: god um that you know that point that there it must have been so easy just going you know what let's let's take a step back let's take a break right. and figure out what we want to do that probably would have been the death nail, but right. they just had to keep going. He and, would have been a car salesman, it. yeah or whatever I mean he's a intelligent guy, so
0: and I think yeah. I you know you bringing up her letter really makes me want to sort of take a take a beat to recognize a a style of filmmaking that Apatow and Bonfiglio do that I really love. And that is the animation of the n- handwritten notes, the diaries, the circling of things. You know, I really feel like those artifacts of who we are and like our lives and the way, you know, diaries and journals and the things that the notes that you write down in and of themselves, I think, are really personal and really sort of fill out a story and give it a personal touch. But the fact that they've made this choice to animate that, you literally see it being written, is really cool. I think it's a really cool choice. I agree with you. So John Davidson was the host of the Craft Summer Musical, which was, you know, Brenda called the first turning point of success because George gets an agent, he gets a press agent, a manager, and, and in so doing, effectively, puts Brenda out of a job and uh, excludes her from that part of what was once their life is now just his life which i can imagine is just really jarring um she you know and and so then obviously she's she's cut out of that and she's feeling really replaced abandoned dealing with a lot of feelings of worthlessness i mean i just put myself in her shoes and i think how it feels it's so gratifying to really take a chance on something to do a lot of work to suffer for it to hang in there to be like a partner in a thing and then suddenly be utterly outside of that thing you are you are benefiting from that thing like and, and I think Kelly says at some point you know she liked the lifestyle she didn't mind the fact that now they were making money but suddenly she's displaced from this thing that defined her everyday life, I, I have to believe that's just really um, tough. And clearly it is because this really kicks, where she kicks off her drinking problem, her own drinking problem.
1: And that's a testament to her, right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of marriages fail because right. of this very scenario.
0: Yeah, she chose, instead of leaving, she chose to numb.
1: <laughs> right. Right. She self-medicated, as right. they say today.
0: Yeah. You know, she talks about that growing dysfunction becoming... Their little, you know, their family's dirty little secret. Um, and,
1: but this was during his squeaky clean image, right? Where right. he said, if my family can't see it, then I'm not going to do it.
0: Right. Right. Which is an interesting, interesting, right? Considering yeah. kind of who he was at the base of things and him talking about how he was a victim of his own success, that he was sort of missing yeah. who he really was because of that.
1: Right. And he was, you know, he was, he was being something that he wasn't. So the real—if he was being who he was, he may have been able to address that situation with his wife and her feeling left out and then drinking as a result. Right. But because he was playing a part, he probably— Right. That part couldn't deal with it, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. It's just interesting.
0: I don't know if you've been in this situation. I think I see this a lot, too, which is if I have my things I hope you're forgiving me about— and I want to keep doing these things that maybe you're forgiving me about. I might not call you out on your things that you yeah. require, you know, being forgiven for. I'm in. It's this unspoken contract we have, which is I'm letting you kind of slide on that thing because I also have these things and you're you kind of letting me slide. So yeah. there's this unspoken thing. And, and so to that point, you know, we get into the next part where he talks about beginning to take acid and mescaline. Right. Right, And, and so I, you know, I don't think maybe he was going hard and fast on making her stop any sort of drinking when he was in a place of also dabbling.
1: But before we uh, get to the outlaw era, yeah, there's a scene where you have George and his daughter singing Rockin' My Baby. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, moving. To be heard to listen to that must be yeah. very difficult because... That no. being so innocent with her daddy that, you know, was the light of her life.
0: Oh, yeah. And she, you can tell that she clearly throughout, you know, even though they have a history and a family that, that dealt with these dysfunctions, that she really, the through line of it is just a lot of love for her parents, really, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and humanizing them. And I think that that's really a, a sign of strength that you can, to get to a place where you see your parents and their flaws as a thing that affected you negatively or otherwise, but that probably wasn't about you. It just landed on you. And it's, it seems like she's really been able to see her parents as these flawed human beings and been able to unpack a lot of the things that drove those characteristics in them. And, um, so he's, He's dropping acid. I've never dropped acid, so I don't know uh, what that experience is. Not yet, anyway. So he begins to take acid and mescaline. He doesn't really, we don't ever get any benefit of, like, the context of that. Like, a, like how did how did that come about? But I guess it doesn't matter. He he just says that he saw things differently. And as a result of dabbling in these drugs. And he saw that, you know, and, and this is a quote from him. Who I really was, was an outlaw and a rebel who swam against the tide of the establishment of what the establishment wants from us. And that person was being suppressed. So I had to come to terms with who I really was and what I really wanted to do. Which, gosh, I feel like that's brave. Like you and I are both people who've been, you know, worked creatively and chased creative-based dreams. And imagine that you're getting, you're actually finally nibbling on that cookie. And it's the, you think, Oh, it took me so, it took me a lot of work to get to this cookie, to eat over at this cookie. And now I realize I don't, this is the wrong side of the cookie. And in order to change, I've got to risk not getting back to this cookie. Like that, that's a weird analogy. I know. <laughs> but I just mean the fact that he pivoted at all, that he reflected on who he really was and the truth of what he wanted to express as, as a creative, as a comedian. And that he decided, I'm not going to be this thing. I'm not going to be this mainstream comedian. I'm going to be this rebel and this outlaw. Which a lot of ri- there's just so much risk.
1: Right. Uh, he was miserable but successful. Right. And a lot of people today will stay miserable because the success is yeah. just too much of an enticement. And right. The fear of change. Right. Permeates everywhere. But in my opinion. Each change he makes, he gets better as a comedian. Yes. And as someone, a person of influence in our society. Right. So, but it's not easy. Changes like that are just hard. So hard. So hard.
0: And so much risk. And, and especially when you're now experiencing some success. And I,
1: right. After living in a dodged art. Right. How do you I, explain that to your wife? Honey, we're going back to the dart. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but now I can afford a station. Like, we're really moving on up. I, you know, I I think that, and he says here, one of the things I learned as a child was to deny my feelings. It saved my life, probably. Pushing the feelings down, but I was a traitor and living a lie because I wanted to say so many things. And what changed that was acid, <laughs> which I think is, you know, not therapy or <laughs> any of the things we're all doing today. Um, although there is some arguments in the world of um, psilocybin and, and treating trauma, I digress. Um, I think that that's also, uh, it's pretty reflective that he, he's he been able to look back on the ways in which he developed as a person as a result of his childhood. Again, that theme coming back where he says, I, I learned as a child to deny my feelings and that saved me, which I think you have to do when you have either neglectful parents or or abusive parents you have to figure out a way to compartmentalize those tough feelings so that you can keep moving you know and i thought that was really insightful that he had that perspective on himself and that he did acid <laughs> this brings his oh, oh i wanted to talk to you about this because i thought this was wild and this is another example of what i'm talking about he brings his brother which by the way i i did a cartoon double take that that was his brother based on what you see you know you guys if you haven't seen it yet, his brother is a part of this narrative, and he's interviewed for this documentary. And he is—he's looking rough, like <laughs> he's a guy who's lived hard, and it's—it's uh, it's absolutely on his exterior, which is no different than George. Honestly, like at the point where he's forty-five, the guy looks like he's yeah. pushing sixty. Yeah, and so it's common, you know. Uh, obviously, between the two of them, but there's this footage of he and his brother on um
1: Ed, on Sullivan. Ed Sullivan of all places. He
0: he, on a whim, he just asks his car salesman brother who, who, to come on and do this gag with him, this bit. His brother says they're both loaded, which is just, I just want to unpack that.
1: But I, his, his brother's great in it. I mean, he's, he's a great straight man in that bit great. that is somewhat funny. I didn't blow me away. It was but. all
0: right. It was just okay. But I just, I just thought the balls, yeah. just truly the balls balls of like i'm gonna go on ed sullivan and i'm gonna bring my non-pro brother right and he's just gonna riff with me while we're both high as a kite (laughs) like all of that i gotta be honest i was a little jealous of the experience i just thought that'd be fun that just feels like i'd love to go be in his shoes just for that day
1: (laughs) right what was ed sullivan thinking when he sees this
0: Gosh, I don't know. What's you do.
1: Up? You do an Ed Sullivan do impression, like, don't you? I, yeah,
0: I, I had to stop. I Was getting a lot of complaints. Do you feel like uh, when George um, got to the afterlife that Ed was there to say what? <laughs> you were high on my show. Um, anyway, awesome. I just really that stood out for me, honestly. Um, and uh, okay, so the next sort of phase of this is his for me that I that I have in my notes is um, his embracing of profanity. And um, and the fact that he just basically now in this new you know outlaw rebel phase as he's doing stand up and booking gigs he just sort of letting it fly he's not edited right and uh, he gets fired he gets fired from a, a, a like a a week it's a weekly job for three years I did the math on this Jim. Okay, I did the I went back and looked up the inflation. Well, he
1: was at the he was at the frontier in Vegas. Right.
0: Yeah. The front so yeah, good point. He's in Vegas. He's got a three year contract. It is a once a week show. He's making twelve thousand five hundred dollars a week in today's money. That's almost a hundred K a
1: week.
0: A week in today's money. It's not quite a hundred thousand. It's about nine I mean, if we're gonna get into the math, it's ninety eight thousand dollars
1: well, a week. Well, let's year. round up to a hundred thousand in fifty two weeks is Five point oh, yeah. two million. Uh, <laughs> just our next podcast will be Frank Mathematics. Carmel- uh, as and an you. accountant. Please
0: weigh in on this. Um so it, either way. Whatever. whatever it's whatever a lot the, of money. Whatever. It's a <laughs> it's And a, why did he get fired? It's a buttload of money. Well, because he keeps being he's using profanity. He's You're, swearing and
1: But according to him, he just said shit. Is that all he said? That's all he said. He got fired for saying shit. Oh. And he goes, I find that ironic that I got fired for saying shit. In a place that plays crap. Oh yeah, that craps. That's yeah. right. Okay. I didn't know if it was
0: singularly that word and he or
1: that's if that was a I, bit that's how I Yeah. No, I thought there was a news no the news clipping said profanity. And he's saying he just said shit. That's yeah. what that's what
0: Well, here's what's interesting. The documentary doesn't include this, but I did a little intel, um, a little recon myself. He actually he got fired from that gig that year. Asked for forgiveness, went, and they finally let him back the next year. So they rebooked him and he promptly used all the same language.
1: Did he so, still get fired? Yes, he uh. got fired
0: a second time, which I just think is so funny. Why bother getting yourself back in there if your plan is to just let it all fly, let it all hang out, which, you know, you got to respect. But anyway, I thought that was a little funny thing that I, I sort of researched and saw that he did. And, and so in order to find his audience find the audience for him being his true self. He tells Brenda, "I got to go on the college shore, right? I got to pivot towards younger people who um my my stuff is really for. So I could, you know, to, and I quote, show my complete self." We'll get to it. I just one of the things that I noticed as he as he decided to pivot his material to being more toward himself, I noticed this similar effect on his outward style. That it's not just Him being himself in this sort of thinking, subject matter, perspective, the way I talk about it, profanity, etc. But his hair goes long. He immediately loses any kind of suit, any kind of conservative. denim. Yeah. It all changes.
1: What I was impressed by is, of course, that yielded a ton of questions. You know, what's the new George Carlin? And he never dismissed it. He never took it personally. He was never insulted. He would answer that question that everybody asked him from Michael Douglas to Joe Ono, right. <laughs> who he's happened to be sitting next to with John Lennon. <laughs> and uh, he answers it with grace and he explains it. And he, yeah. he takes his time and he explains it. He doesn't say it's none of your business. Right. Is, I'm the artist. It was he was a professional about it. And I thought he that was, really, was he as knew. he was getting more anti established, he stayed professional right. in his way he was doing what he was doing.
0: And I, I feel like it goes all the way back to fifth grade where he knew what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do. Which and is amazing. And it's almost like that knowing, knowing this pivot is what I need to do. It almost, it almost released him from having to be defensive because he's just like, look, this is what I got to do. Yeah. This is the thing.
1: And he was going to do it yeah, no regardless. matter
0: what. Right. You accept it or you don't accept it. This right. is the way I'm going and you got to really respect that. And And the fact that honestly, and you and I, you know, we're, uh, middle-aged people, and so we've come to need and uh, <laughs> need and value making more money, and and needing to you know have a have that for security. So I also respected the fact that it dialed he and Brenda down to twelve thousand a year. Now that's not a pittance when you consider that twelve thousand a year was almost a hundred grand a year. It was they were still doing it right, especially for then. But I just I really respected the fact that they took this big hit um, financially and just then kept on with it, you know? You look like you have a thought.
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, okay. but he does it four more times. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's is that a question of, is he just never got happy or is this just how you should do life? You should right. be constantly evolving. Right. Yeah.
0: What What's the sign saying evolve or die? Is that it?
1: Who says that? I don't
0: know who says that. <laughs> And so invariably, this has an effect on their marriage When um, and in, in, a, in a good way, right? So what was trending sort of negatively, um, as he had seen early success mainstream, when he changed into counterculture guy, it was exciting for Brenda because it was like the old days. It was just like starting over, right? When he said to her, look, I want to make this, I want to make this change. I want to take this risk. And this is who I really am. She said, I'll make your press kit, right? She did not bobble and moved right forward. And, and even though, you know, as Kelly said, she had enjoyed the lifestyle, uh, but she, you know, she was no longer pertinent uh, prior to
1: that. You're right. He, he goes from 250 K to 12 K. Yeah. Uh I, This is where you see Stephen Colbert come in and he has a great analogy of saying, you know, George Carlin's like the Beatles, right? He starts out singing, you know, uh, she loves you. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> Involves to the White Album, right? Clearly, right. there's a transformation there.
0: That's a great analogy. You make a good point. Yeah,
1: and and the uh, and it, this is where you start to see because George is really wanting to speak his mind as opposed to play some part, right? How apropos he is not he was not just then, but even more now, where he talks about the birth control pills someday becoming. You don't need a prescription, but they having these crazy names and he goes off on these, you know, mom bombs and these crazy names. But have you ever watched streaming TV with commercials? There are almost all these ads for medications that have these crazy names. How did he see that? So way back then, I don't know. He really did. And again, it's from him just taking off what he felt were, you know, blocks or gates. Right. Right speaking how he sees the world, it really shows him to be someone who not only saw that day, but it perpetuating even worse in the future. And then, and uh, I like the part about how Flip Wilson had that record label, uh, yeah. Little David Records that helped George Carlin start to make money again. Yeah. Um, because he was making his albums. And what I, I did a little deep diving there and Little David Records, he actually sold to George Carlin. So George Carlin bought Little... Really? Yeah, and then he folded it into his his label, Eardrum Records, in the 80s. And Eardrum. I think lasted until he passed.
0: I do love these so, little tidbits you're bringing to thanks. the pod. I really... Keep it up. To the part of the documentary where it seems his drug problem really grows, and um, this is... At this point, his first arrest for...
1: But they're both doing drugs, right? Correct. She's not just drinking. She's doing coke with him.
0: I believe you're right. right. I believe they're both abusing drugs. And pot. Right. And am I remembering this correctly? He was arrested. Well, it's in my notes. I just don't know if it's correct. He was arrested for growing pot is what I, what I noted. And then also gets into cocaine. So here's where cocaine gets on board.
1: Well, a note I gave myself was when he was on that show with his wife... Yes, Brenda and the two co-hosts right. asking them about drugs and about their daughter and drugs. Right, and they said, "What when your daughter f- figures it out? What will you tell her?" And Brenda said, "Well, I hope that if she does do drugs, it's pot or <laughs> <Right. laughs> something like that." And the daughter in present age goes, "Yeah, you can tell she's loaded there."
0: Yeah, Kelly says and, that's loaded, mom. Yeah, which I think is really a a, a perception of children of of abuse like substance abusers right it's like oh that guy's here or that gal's here right. right
1: but his response is spot on and just really shows how intelligent he is and how he's not persuaded by trends fads decisions based on you know right, masses of people or or you know uh, groups or religions or anything and he basically says look we're gonna be at if we give her an honest answer where she can trust us she's gonna She's not going to hear it from us. She's going to hear it from her kid friends right. at school. So we might as well be honest with her or she trusts us. And we have, yeah. a, and it's just it's really reason it really points out how smart he is. Yeah. I,
0: that
1: and that, yeah. And,
0: and that, that's actually, I mean, I think on most topics, that's what your are yeah. is good for your kid. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, they get into cocaine at this point. Um, I love this story and if I'm skipping ahead, please pull me back. Um, but, uh, my next note is about buying a jet and sitting on the tarmac with the, for the exclusive purpose of just drinking beer, smoking pot, and doing cocaine by himself.
1: Two six-packs he brought.
0: <laughs> Two six-packs.
1: And he's just saying, look, I just, clearly I didn't understand finances <laughs> when I bought a plane just to use it as a hideaway.
0: I also thought to myself that his takeaway of that scenario was exclusively his abandonment of understanding of finances. Right. Like, I'm like, there are so many things wrong. <laughs> That's that true. Like, there's just uh, so many elements of this that are dysfunctional, but he's just like, man, I need to be better with my
1: money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the pile of Coke or the right? bag of <laughs> yeah. pot or the 12 pack. <laughs> right. all, and by yourself. Like,
0: yeah, by I'm himself, I've been vibing to excess alone on a tarmac,
1: which is a In really, my private jet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Truly, I just had to laugh when I saw that. Part. I thought, okay, if that was your takeaway. The fact
1: that he came off that plane the next day is a miracle of modern science.
0: Unbelievable, yeah. Um, so so that happens, and then... Um, Uh, You know, I and I might be skipping ahead. I I did sort of truncate some of this stuff, but I I have my notes talking about how the marriage was affected and how he's, you know, once again, we're like back in their letters and and him writing letters to Brenda saying he's going to get off the drugs. He's going to get off the booze. He says, and I thought this was um, really pertinent, that he needs to get to the bottom of why he's drinking and why he wants to, quote, hurt and be hurt and, and and why essentially he sees his drug use as a form of, of therapy, right? Of self-medicating, I guess. And, you know, his promise is to sort of stop, which is interesting. I think it's interesting to make pledges to a person who's also doing drugs <laughs> and drinking. And, and and at that point, poor Kelly, because you think, are my parents just in a battle of who's worse right now? And, right, like, are, were they taking turns apologizing to each other? It's It's hard to know. You don't really get that.
1: So I I don't remember when he says hurt and be hurt. Was he and he's saying that he wants to get off drugs but he doesn't, right? I mean, he still goes on for a while. Doesn't well, he?
0: he certainly fails. I think we all, you know, yeah. he's basically saying I I'm going to kick this. I know I need to in on these my, letters. Uh, on my own. Right. Like I'm yeah, I'm going to stop and I need to get to the bottom of why I, I I want to hurt and be hurt. I put in quotes. It's what he wrote. Um Yeah. So I you know, I I just thought it was interesting. Um Uh, an interesting perspective or uh, an interesting view into that relationship where it's not as though he were writing to a wife who was a teetotaler. Right. um, And who didn't also, she wasn't just not a teetotaler. She had a problem. Right. And so that, that that makes it interesting. And maybe to your point, it reflects that he wasn't super clear on how bad her problem was, That he was really still feeling very culpable and sort of singularly bad in, in that, in that respect.
1: Well, in my own past, I know when I feel guilty about something, I don't see the guilt in anybody else. I right. see, I'm just trying to hide mine or yeah, and, and
0: uh, demonizing ourselves. Yeah, right? no
1: one else can do wrong because <laughs> I have to make excuses for what I've been doing. Right, I'm, so. um,
0: I'm the wrong one. Right. Yeah, and I, I thought this sort of this next piece kind of happened abruptly F- from my perspective. Um, they touch on Brenda's, you know, um, d- you know, drinking, et cetera, but then suddenly Brenda's alcoholism is bad right? It's just really bad. And to the point where Kelly Carlin talks about how her, her father wouldn't allow Brenda to drive her anywhere. She couldn't drive her to school. She couldn't drive her places. So we're at a place right where, it, you know, she's not even daytime safe. And she talks about violence in the home erupting, which I thought was interesting, um, uh, you know, considering he had, you know, their violence, his mo- own mother fled from a violent home. Um, and so things got Pretty bad and pretty hectic, apparently. And, you know, she said her mom was an angry drunk and her dad was dealing with a lot of repressed anger, which doesn't sound, sounds like a recipe for something that's not good. And then she, uh, she talks about this Hawaii vacation they went on and there's this knife wielding incident, which is wild. And I might not remember it exactly right. Was it her her mom had the knife? I think and was. Kind of going at George yeah. toward George with this knife, and she essentially just freaks out. Says enough. She being Kelly, and says she draws up this peace treaty and basically makes them promise to behave. Which is just think about that. Like poor kid. Like there's this there's this term in psychology called the parentified child, and in that moment she is truly that thing. Right? She's having to suddenly be the adult in the room. With her parents while on vacation. And
1: then she said- We had a couple Hudson vacations (laughs) like that. Did you? (laughs) Something went wrong. Dave Hudson erupted.
0: (laughs) Eruption. My stepmother was that person. My dad used to say, "Um, come with me. She's about to make a scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Um, and then she sort of speaks of Brenda's rock bottom which was backing her car through the lobby of an inn in the Pacific Palisades
1: so is the scene it is the recordings of him screaming into the mic before that or after that and well, then I don't that know. and then that episode of Mike Douglas where George's mom comes on
0: yeah, Mary, Mary Carlin. Did you see what George
1: Carlin looks like that? in He in, looks terrible. Oh, my God. I didn't recognize him.
0: The drug use is so Yeah, on you can him. tell. He is it so is
1: strung out. So he's, on him. He's pale. He's a skinny guy to begin with. He's super, he's gaunt by yeah, George gaunt. Carlin standards. And like
0: the dark, dark circles under his eyes. Yeah, and
1: the uh, sunken eyes. And, yeah, well, oh I and mean, he's just on him. I mean, I, that scene to me is probably the most awkward scene of the documentary for me. It is. Where you got him, clearly he's strung out. He can barely keep it together. Right. And then his mom, for some reason, why his mom
0: why is on the show. Why he would, agree, to why have he would his, agree. Why
1: yeah. would why would Mike Douglas want his mom?
0: And he doesn't look happy. Right. Yeah. He doesn't he's well, not he enjoying looks, it.
1: To me, he looks like just strung out. So. And he can't he's trying he's he's in that state where he knows if he does anything they're gonna figure out that he's loaded. Right. So he's trying to be very meticulous right. about it and you know he's like fiddling with his mom's mic for he's no reason. He's like fixing reason.
0: things. Yeah, and he's and really Michael Douglas is trying
1: not to acknowledge that by talking to the mom and her mom is typical mom doesn't quite know the audience.
0: <laughs> yeah, and she's so you know and I was I mean it strikes you cuz you realize like a lot of his background and his issues with his mother are also her constant not you know not approving yeah. of him and then most of the banter is at his expense correct right so even yeah. though it's soft banter at his expense I just thought, oh, this is going to suck coming and going for him. Right. He's and just like
1: Whoa. how Mike Douglas, the uh, you know talk show host, navigates. And I give him credit for yeah. that because you got strung out George. You got crazy mom. It's like I got this isn't entertainment.
0: Right. And he's like <laughs> wanting it's to talk about George
1: announcement. Yeah. Right?
0: He's like, isn't he like, was he a good kid? And she's like, I've loved you for all my life. And that's not the question. She's not even thinking about the son that is the
1: whole reason she's on the show. She
0: just it's Mary's moment. She's talking to Mike right i just sort of that struck me too
1: but what just blew me away is we we see in this documentary george carlin from a small all right sorry not small well a small boy to the last stage right. of his life and you can always recognize it's george carlin except for that one yeah. scene i literally go wait who's that whoa right yeah he looks bad i'm overselling it for those he's who a little bit the crypt it, keeper he's the crypt keeper yeah that he scene. just looks like
0: And, you know, know, on the Mary topic, the Mary Carlin topic, I, I could never really I couldn't really wrap my head around why she came to visit. But apparently she came to visit. It seemed to me that she was coming to visit to help because of Brenda's alcoholism was so bad that George really didn't have somebody to help with Kelly. But what she did was arrive and just light a flame to everything which you'd have to know, like talk about rock a hard place. If you're reaching out to your mother, who was just no source of, of comfort or a soft place to land, you got not, Like you've run out of ideas. Right. I think at that point, yeah. um, they never talk about, they, they never touch on Brenda's parents or that family. But, um, so she comes out, uh, Mary arrives. And then essentially they're at the, you know, this is the rock bottom of Brenda's alcoholism. And Mary, Mary just enables it and just, Pours her drinks. <laughs> it's just wild. Like she's she's giving her drinks and then just filling her with derision about George. Yeah. Just talk about taking your bad situation and making it worse. Like almost voluntarily. It's it's just it feels like self-flagellation bringing Mary into the. But then you know, thankfully, so then Brenda goes into the hospital for twenty-one day treatment. Seems to work, which I thought, wow, twenty-one days without like sort of the model we're working with today. She cleans up and then says, I'm not coming home unless you get that mother out of there, which I, you know, he, his wife, once again, ends up being the exact thing he needs because she sort of shakes off her alcoholism and goes, oh, I'm clear headed now. Get that woman out of there.
1: Right. And (laughs) he couldn't be happier. And Who wanted her there?
0: Right. And basically, Kelly retells the story like, I mean, I, in my mind, I was seeing this scene where he's literally just like hauling her out and throwing her into the car and just like burning rubber to LAX. <laughs> <laughs> so there there we exit Mary Carlin and everyone to everyone's great uh, joy. And it's at this stage or somewhere around this time in his life where he really his career starts to wane. And, um, at this point he's the first guest host of SNL ever, which is really a feather in your cap when you consider what SNL became, but it was happening at a time where he was really kind of yesterday's news, right? He was sort of starting to slip out of the zeitgeist. What caught me
1: was, I was thinking, well, okay, George Carlin's out of, you know, out of trend, uh, must be the eighties, but no, we're just talking mid seventies here, right? Like 75, 76. Yeah. And you're right. That is with Cheech and Chong. That's Cheech. when we got a hold of our big brother's Cheech and Chong album. <laughs> it's exactly. Played them until they melted.
0: That is what, a Cheech and Chong is where I discovered comedy albums. Like knowing those were a thing. And like oh, a friend, yeah. like me a friend's too. older sister had it. And I, up his nose it goes. I mean, it's like the first comedy bit I ever heard on a record. Yeah, me too. Was Cheech and Chong up his nose it goes.
1: And I just thought it was so funny. I remember Sister Mary Elephant. Remember
0: that one, the t-shirt? I I don't. Now it makes me want to go back and listen. It doesn't make you want to listen.
1: But a fun fact about the first Saturday Night Live. Ooh, I love. We need to come up with a name for these. The musical. Yes. Yes. There was two of them, Billy Preston and Janice Ian. Janice
0: Ian of the, uh, um, at at 17?
1: At 17, well done.
0: I learned the truth at 17. And Billy
1: Preston, known as the fifth Beatle, he... uh, Saying nothing from nothing. Oh, leaves nothing, right? Nothing, nothing from
0: nothing leaves nothing. There right? you go. God, I have something. <laughs> and at this point, he asks, now ready? Wait for it. Tony Orlando for a job. Now, Tony Orlando is interviewed for this. And I was like, Tony Orlando's alive. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> it kind of gave me joy because I also loved that variety been show. around
1: forever. Forever
0: ever. And again, if we, you know, under the same theme of like, if you're, if you're asking your, you know, terrible mother to come help you, what, like, where are you at in terms of your wits end? I also thought this about the Tony Orlando asking Tony for a job because he hated the mainstream, He he had this aversion. And so he'd really pivoted to save himself and buy himself some time. I really feel like, right. He, he had, you know, he had been the guy sort of changing the form and suddenly he wasn't. And now he needed to pay the bills. And so he's on the Tony Orlando show, which I just had to crack up. I don't remember him from it. I just remember Dawn.
1: <laughs> I just remember Dawn. I thought it was, no, it's Dawn's because there's two of them.
0: Right. But isn't it Tony Orlando and Dawn? Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, and that actually brings us to the end of uh, part one. It is a two-part documentary. Come
1: on. Rick Moranis doing George Carlin. That's brilliant. <laughs> I don't care if it's making fun of him. I love that.
0: Listen, I, I feel bad because I don't remember it.
1: I don't remember this moment. There's green grapes. How come there's no green wine? <laughs> oh, that's right. You know, red wine, white wine. We might have to and cut in that. We, all, we, that's not funny. <laughs> They're all red. We might have to. Oh, how can you forget that? That's what George Carly okay. the, There's the note yes. saying he's, you know, he's no longer relevant. Right. I, 100%. You know and even I Cheech Marin goes, oh, look, he's doing jokes about peas. He's done. And that's when he goes. All right. Well, I'm going to show the world. I'm going to kick all their asses. Yeah. Which is not part of the seven words.
0: <laughs> I do know what you're talking about now. I, you know what? I actually was thinking that Rick Moranis was one of the comedians who was weighing in, but you are referring to a bit.
1: bit a Bit on SCTV. On
0: SCTV, where yeah. they're making fun of George Carlin. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. And now, and they talk and about.
1: Things that are over, one of them being George right. Carlin, and then Cheech Marin saying, look, he's making fun. He's making jokes right? with peas. He's done. That's wild. And that's when episode one ends, saying, right. I'll show them. Right. He, well, I think he says, F them. Right. Right. Let's all go Which is one of the seven lobby. Let's all go to
0: the lobby. <laughs> Podumentary is executive produced by me, Melanie Dark, and produced by both Jim Hudson and I with the support of our fearless production coordinator, Kate Dark. The podcast is recorded and engineered at New Vine Music Studios in sunny Santa Monica. And our theme song is the 1950s movie intermission classic, Let's All Go to the Lobby, licensed courtesy of Filmac Studios. You can find more episodes of this podcast and smash that subscribe button at podumentary.co. That's podumentary.co. We'd also love to hear your take on this documentary. You can use our website's recorded message feature to do that, and we might even feature your message in a future episode. If voicemail isn't your thing, you can shout out your comments, criticisms, or documentary requests on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at @podumentary and on Twitter at @podumentarypod. If straight-up old-fashioned email's more your speed, drop us a line using hey at podumentary.co. And if you've gotten this far, you're one of us. See you next time.